There's Billy O'Connor. We're going to get Billy's take on us. Uh, you can watch most sitcoms, and they're all in the same house. They're all in the same house. I mean, uh, the All in the Family house, okay, uh, um, it was the same house as Married with Children. You know, and you can you can point out dozens of them where the door was that you walked in. There was a little landing at the door. You stepped down. There was a living room. You never saw the television. There was reasons for that. There was either a couch or a chair. You know, there were stairs behind them. Then a kitchen off to as you, as if you were off to your left. Sometimes the kitchen was separated. Sometimes it wasn't. It was the exact same house. Exact same house in the Cosby house. Same as all in the family. Same house. You know, a lot of this was developed uh, by Desi Arnaz because he figured out a way to be able to shoot a sitcom. How do we shoot a, uh, um, a one-set sitcom where we can tell a story in 22 minutes, you know, and what's going to give it depth, you know, what's going to the, make, make the room look right? That was all figured out by Desi Arnaz. He, he should be reaping fortunes from all these set designers. <laughs> no one ever talks about that, about set. That set designer ripped off my set, man. I'm going to put it on YouTube. See, man, the set I designed for that sitcom, dude, is exactly like that sitcom, <laughs> and they stole my set, man. See, what they did was they put a couch instead of a chair. It's bullshit, man. <laughs> that never takes place. You know, you never hear a musician go, he used a C-sharp, man. I, I play C-sharp. He's ripping me off. The most, the only original indigenous art form, many people say, is jazz. Okay? And how many people buy jazz records? You want to make money? Steal. <laughs> well, it's the same thing if you're in a bar business and you're trying to push a jazz band. You ain't selling any drinks. You're not selling any drinks. That was uh, the voice of Billy O'Connor, um, who we're going to take a break. We come back and we're talking with Billy. Uh, Billy, is a, he's a twofer. He's not a halfa. A halfa? You're, you're not a halfa. You're a twofer. Uh, Billy not only is a very funny comic, he's also a uh, published uh, author. We were talking about uh, books. I'll tell you what I was talking about earlier, that I've actually read your book. And, uh, and I'm um, thrilled you did because I really respect your opinion, yeah. brother. I took a break during your book and read another book and then went back to your book. Uh -huh. But uh, uh, I read your book. It's a very good book. Um, I, was, uh, I enjoyed it. I was entertained by it. Billy uh, has written a book called Confessions of a Bronx Bookie, which I think you got the deal off the title right off. <laughs> that was a good title. You understand. You understand the lure of a good title. So uh, he's written a book and he will also be at the Tepe Center of the Arts tomorrow night on the, uh, in an unusual show for him. And at one time, an unusual show for me, I was once banned for six months, suspended from a uh, comedy chain for uh, being too dirty. Um, <laughs> we're going to talk about all that when we come back. To, he'll be uh, on the Clean Kings of Comedy tomorrow night at the Tempe Center of the Arts. We'll be back in just a couple of moments. That's who that was. My new favorite band, Flathead. Uh, and you know why they're my new favorite band? Because I think they're really good. We kind of rediscovered this band. I mean, I, I discovered this band on my own. I'm like most Americans. I'll find something that was already there and belongs to someone else. I go, I discovered this. Uh, 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 but I found them. Um, full disclosure, the uh, drummer is my uh, son-in-law. Okay. Ah. But he's only like, uh, I think he's a little older than me. So uh, <laughs> uh, they're a great band, kind of an alt-country punk band uh, that was, broke up for a long time. have gotten back together. And we're going to have them at the... Um, the Tempe Center of the Arts, March 25th, uh, with a show that we're calling Flathead and Funny. So keeping with our comedy theme, that we still do comedy, we have a, uh, we have a comic open for them. And then uh, uh, you'll see, and there's rumors that we're going to have someone who will be open for them, who actually was in a very big band at one time, was a new project. I don't know that I can announce that yet or not. Okay? I can mention, I, can I mention that uh, I no longer drink, but when I, even when I did drink, <laughs> I didn't like gin. 
And can I mention that I enjoy, I used to enjoy the spring when I was a kid in Missouri because of all the uh, blossoms. So can I mention the word gin and blossoms? Can I do that? In that way. In that way, yeah, without <laughs> saying that anybody who is formerly with the gin blossoms might be there uh, opening as well. Hey, we are, uh, you're listening to This American Podcast Comedy Edition on ComedySchoolsRadio.com, coming to you live Thursday, July 20th, 2016, from the ComedySchools.com studios, high above Scottsdale at the second coolest corner in all of Scottsdaleville, uh, Goldwater and Camelback. I forgot where I was for a minute. <laughs> it's been a rough week, man. You know, I got sued. I went to small claims court. Uh, that wasn't, you know, it, you, here's the sad, here's the weird thing is that I, to me, it, it was like funny. You're a comic. I'm in studio with Billy O'Connor, by the way, who's a very funny guy. He'll be at the Tempe Center of the Arts Friday, uh, January 21st uh, in Clean Kings of Comedy. He's also a published author, wrote a very good book, which I happen to have read, called Confessions of a Bronx Bookie. But do you find yourself sometime in like serious situations going, oh, this is funny? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, uh, that's that's where humor comes from. I mean, I think the truth is always funnier than fiction, you know? Uh, yeah. And, you know, Matt, as a matter of fact, writers will tell you that uh, the way to tell truth from fiction, you know, you read my book and a lot of people ask me, I believe this part, but I don't believe this part. I don't believe this part, yeah. but I do that. And usually, inevitably, the part that they don't believe is the part that's true. And the part they do believe is, is, is fiction. Yeah. But the way to tell fact from fiction is fiction has to be believable. Ah. <laughs> the truth doesn't. I like that. That's absolutely true. If you read a book and you say, well, I wonder if that's true. If, if it's something that a writer couldn't write in a million years, then you know yeah. it's true. And, and comedy's the same way, right? Yeah, it is. It and, is absolutely. And I'm going to bow to your knowledge of comedy because I'm just a neophyte. But you, uh, uh, you're, you're pretty truth funny is always Truth is always funnier. Um, truth is generally, yeah, yeah, generally truth is funny. Well, you look, anything's funny if you tell it funny. You know, there are situations that then, I've seen situations where the situation itself was funny, but then the person who then relates the situation <laughs> relates in a way that it's not funny. <laughs> Telling stories as firefighters and four or five guys would be hanging around and saying, uh, yeah, I went down this hallway and I, I, I made a search in the back bedroom and I found it. And the guy said, no, no, it didn't happen like that. Wait a second, I was there, let me tell you what happened. And then the guy says, shut up. He tells it better. He tells it better. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it, it's, it's never, it, when people say the truth is funny, the truth is funny if it's told in a funny way. Yeah. You know? So, um, you know, when Glenn Fry passed away this week, which was a, uh, shocking to a lot of us, uh, although you know, a little quick research shows that the man had been ill for a long time. This had been an ongoing, he'd had, he'd had um, part of his large intestine removed several years ago. There were several tours in the past 15 years or so, they had to be canceled or postponed because of Glenn Fry illnesses. Now, that wasn't uh, uh, really publicized a lot, but the guy had been sick for a long so time. So was it in, uh, intestinal cancer? It was, he had, he, uh, he had a, um, intestinal, uh, you know, he had rheumatoid arthritis, and then I want to, I don't, I want to say, I'm going to mangle this. Rob, look this up. I want to say like ulceritis or something. Do you have anything on that, or are you still trying to find out if Amy Schumer's a joke thief or not? He's a hey, you know what they say. That's another thing writers say. They say good writers borrow, but great writers steal. Great writers steal, yeah. That's exactly sure. true. And you know what? I steal verbs all the time. I look for verbs, you know, because yeah. verbs is the key to a sentence. Uh -huh. And I'm writing a story now about a novel about 9-11. It ends at 9-11. 
And it occurred to me that Robert Service, the great poet who wrote about the Alaskan Yukon, yeah. there's some similarities between the desolation and the hopelessness of the Yukon and 9-11. I says, his verbs would, would fly here. Yeah. And I steal verbs all the time. I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm stealing a word. You know, so you're not stealing. Yeah, but you're, not, you're not stealing. It's a word you're that exists it. in a dictionary too. That's exactly. It's not like you know, that. That he discovered. <coughs> what happened was he learned somewhere that using these words then made his stories come alive. He learned that somewhere. Right. Of course. And then you learned it from reading him. Exactly. And, you know? and, and 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 there's some verbs. I mean, like you know, the, I mean, they electrify a sentence like. A, I read a lot of this guy, James Lee Burke. I don't know if you're familiar with him at all, but he, he, he's a very descriptive writer. And he uses verbs like diapered, you know, clouds diapered the sky. I says, yeah. that's a great verb. I that's mean, a great verb. You know what? You said it, and I, you know, and I, I saw it. <laughs> yeah. You said it, and I saw it. That, yeah. That's the real. Uh, that's a great verb. That's and, a real deal. And verb yeah. is actually Latin for word. That's so. It's, really? It's, yeah. It's, so it's, that's what electrifies a sentence. I mean, they tell you in journalism school, you know, uh, dynamic verbs. That's what. That's yeah, what sells a sentence. Well, that's the same thing with comedy, right? Yeah, when I when I you know when I uh, uh, I'm working with a group of uh, comedy students, I go write in pictures, you know, and then they go, well, how do I do that? I go, I I I also try to teach active listening. I go, most people don't listen. Most people are waiting to say what they're going to say. That's I, that, that I imagine would be something that you've learned through improv and through all over the years of comedy. I'm a very bad listener. Yeah. But what you're also talking about is show don't tell, and that's exactly what they tell sure. you when you're writing. In other words, if you say Tony Visage is a mean man. That's an opinion. Mean. You're using an adjective. It's an opinion. It, it, but if I say Tony Visage slammed the door in a child's face, slammed, yeah. verb, and kicked his dog, we get it. Tony Visage is a mean man. I'd I, I like to go on record right now <laughs> <laughs> saying that I've never kicked my dog, nor have I slammed the door. In a, I have a daughter. I have but, two grandchildren. I have never... Uh, uh, see, the key is the verbs. It's always the verbs. I have never viciously... <laughs> Or while sober. <laughs> while sober. I like the Slammed. way you the qualifier there. While sober. I, I was always good at qualifiers. Somebody, <laughs> somebody told me I should have worked for the State Department at one time. I will neither confirm nor de deny that any statements were made by anyone here who was speaking at this time. And, you know, as you say those things, just, people walk away trying to figure out, the guy just said nothing. I, yeah, I love uh, the way, that's the way, that's the way the, uh, the plausible denial of the government, like when somebody, somebody makes a mistake, regardless of who it is, they always say, mistakes were made. They never say, I made the mistake, they say, mistakes were made. Yeah. <laughs> that's the pushing on the other guy, the, yeah. the qualifier. Hold on a second, I want to see what the production team is. Oh, I got it up here. Um, what? Glenn Fry died from complications arising from rheumatoid arthritis, colitis, and pneumonia. Wow. Yeah. You know, Shirley doesn't really. You, you, people, people are so comfortable in here that they forget they don't have a microphone in front of them. I was talking loud. <laughs> Robbie, do you have it? You yes, I also okay. have it. Okay. Uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Rheumatoid. Rheumatoid. What'd you call it? Uh, don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> ulcerative colitis and pneumonia. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, he had the whole package. Huh? He had the whole package. Yeah. So uh, um, it, it 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 shocked a lot of people. When he, when he passed away. I think one of the reasons it shocked a lot of people, uh, and then I'll get back to why I, I brought it up again. Uh, the reason it shocked a lot of people is that they, they to our generation, and to uh, even people younger than us, they were still relevant because their music is still played regularly on the radio. Uh, their uh, um, their uh, album, Greatest Hits, 71 to 75, largest selling album per units of any album of any recorded music in the history of recorded music. 
Uh, they still toured on a regular basis. So we weren't thinking of them as – it's not like someone who's not been around for 30 years. They show up and go, wow, that guy aged. Right. It's okay. like they we were aging with them, so we weren't noticing it. And also, it still made so many people of a um, of the latter part of the boom generation, because it was the latter part in the 70s, uh, still feel young mm. because the music that they were listening to was still being played, and these guys were still vibrant and alive on stage. Yeah. And then for one to die like this – not that, you know, when you're young uh, um, and there's no war, your friends die of uh, what I call uh, the young guy diseases, which are, you know, car wrecks and drugs, you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> Depending on what area you grew up in, I yeah. guess. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're about Steve Mann, he wrapped it around a telephone pole, you know? <laughs> Did you hear about Ray and those guys? They were partying. Well, the Romans got a great adage about that. The Romans say, those whom the gods would destroy, they make successful young. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, that's that's uh, boy, especially for our generation. I mean, not to mention all the rock stars, and then look at all the black rock stars that I mean, uh, Marvin and, and and Otis and. Uh, uh, yeah, some still. Jerry Lewis is still alive. Yeah, Chuck Jerry Berry's Lewis. still alive. Jerry Lee Lewis, Little yeah, Richards, still alive. I know, I know. Keith Richards. Well, Keith Richards. Yeah, that's the the meme that I love is that they're going to have to figure out what kind of world we're going to leave for Keith Richards. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's you know what, but in, in honesty. I think Keith Richards looks good. If I was in the Rolling Stones, there's absolutely no way that I would be alive right now. I mean, I couldn't, yeah. even, I couldn't even handle owning a successful bar I was on a road to ruin. You know well, I mean? Mick Taylor quit for that reason. He admitted <laughs> later, he goes, I had to get away from those guys. I was going to die. My, my, I, my Keith Richards jokes is he's, he's the only man in history to stop doing heroin and now looks worse. <laughs> yeah. Usually people stop doing hard drugs. You look better. He just, he looks, he's looked... You know, uh, was it Audie Lang that had that, that that in his book he said about that he made a five hundred dollar bet that, that you know he was going into the garden I think to see the stones, and the guy the security guard said that he couldn't come in because he was smoking a cigarette, and he says Do you mean nobody's going to be smoking a cigarette in this arena? He goes that's right it's no smoking. He says I'll bet you five hundred dollars right now that when Keith Richards comes out on the stage he'll have a cigarette in his mouth. Has anybody ever seen a picture of Keith Richards without a cigarette in his mouth? <laughs> <laughs> Hanging out his side of his mouth. Well, you know, it's funny. We went and saw Dead and Company, uh, Shirley and I, uh, and my younger brother. I've, I've been going to see the Dead since 1970. Uh, and we went to see him at the Forum in Los Angeles. There's no smoking in, in any public arena right now. And uh, we had seats. And, uh, you could be on the floor. You could have seats. We bought seats. About three uh, uh, rows below us, right when they came out, somebody lit up big. And a couple of ushers came over and said, put that out. But by about three songs in, the ushers realized they had lost. Right, right. You know? It was like Woodstock. All, yeah, it was of, Woodstock. Sudden. all of a sudden, there was just this cloud of smoke. It's a free concert. Yeah, going everywhere. <laughs> they, they tried to stop a couple of people, but they went, this is ridiculous. <laughs> this is what these people You know what do. I get a kick out of? I, I'm going to see Springsteen March 15th. I'm a big yeah, Springsteen sure. guy. You know, I'm a big Springsteen guy because I'm from the Northeast, number one. And besides that, he's my age. Uh, Bruce is about my age. And, of course, Stevie Van Zandt. Yeah. Held up that my book and, and pushed my Absolutely. book. Absolutely. So that's like huge for me. You know, he really did me a big solid. And uh, when I get a kick out of when I go to see Bruce, and not too many people you're talking about before about being observant and, and true things, being funny. I love when all the guys my age, anybody between 50 and say 67, 60, 70 years old, are up there dancing because Bruce is sing, singing. Yeah. And all the black ushers are looking up up the aisles and they're just like shaking their heads looking at all these white guys. <laughs> All white guys try to dance. And, and I look at their faces. arm dance now. <laughs> and I look at their faces and I see the disgust on their faces. And I can't even look at the stage. I'm laughing so hard when I look at the ushers. Yeah, Bruce is... Uh, uh, 
I don't know. You know we, 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 I go to the dead shows. It's the only time I really dance. But it's that noodling. It, it, it frightens some people that know me <laughs> to think that I go there and do that noodling Grateful Dead dance stuff. But look, you're going to move the best you can to what, what, what moves you. Bring it, coming back to the Eagles, the, I had put on my uh, Facebook page that I had seen them as Linda Ronstadt's backup band. And you wrote, was it? Uh, uh, in L.A., yeah. In L.A., okay. And it wasn't. It was in uh, St. Louis. And then it started driving me nuts because I'm going, am I misremembering this? Because somewhere in the foggy ruins of the early 70s, I went to a lot of concerts. And I know I saw Jackson Brown. And there was no drugs involved, of course. There was a lot of drugs. <laughs> Heavy, serious drugs in the early 70s. Uh, uh, we were spiking it up, man. We were still, you know, it, it, we had a saying in those days, if you're snorting it, you're wasting it. So, uh, oh, man. You know, that was, you know. <laughs> Like drugs cost money, and you want the biggest effect. Whoa. Yeah. That's and a heavy-duty saying. That's a uh, I had a nickname in the early 70s. I was Second Soak Visick. <laughs> so what Second Soak was, so you had the cotton ball in the spoon, oh, right? Oh, man. So you got the cotton ball in the spoon, and the guy who bought, you know, he's, he cooked it down, and you put the cotton ball in. Some guys would use a, a cigarette filter, but the problem with cigarette filters, sometimes you get like a little uh, shred, would get in the needle and get in your arm and burn. So you always wanted a cotton ball. Because you could suck, suck up through a cotton ball without getting any threads. This is important. <laughs> so, you listening out there, all you kids out there, yeah. get this, get this was, knowledge down. I, I'm clean and sober 30 years. So, <laughs> so, but anyway, so then you would take your hit. A guy would take his hit, but there was still some in a cotton ball. And I'd be like a, the younger guy, you know, with all these older dudes that turn me on in what we call needle dope. And i go, hey, man, can I, can I get second soak? So they'd give me second soak off the cotton ball so I'd get a free hit. So I was second soak. Second visit. soak. Visit. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Cutting a few corners. Yeah. So, yeah, there were a lot of drugs. I know I saw Jackson Brown at the Ambassador Theater. I know I saw Linda Ronstadt at the Ambassador Theater. And one of those two, and they were on the same show, or they were separate shows, had brought some of the Eagles that were backing them up. Because I remember sitting there going, because the Eagles were, were uh, album-oriented rock station. They were played, but they were not the giants that they were, you know, by Hotel California. When I yeah, saw I them. saw their Netflix documentary. It's really good, really yeah. well well done. Yeah. Uh, the Troubadour would be about your wheelhouse, though, yeah. Right? No, but this is in St. Louis. But, like, but but when you but you were banging around that area, right? Around then, I, uh, late seventies. I was bang. I was I was banging around the Troubadour. That is true. <laughs> that is true. I, well, see, the Troubadour had a great deal if you knew if you knew your deal. So I'm in the late seventies. I'm in L.A. Troubadour had the bar, the famous bar, and then the room where the show was. But only one bathroom in the Troubadour happened to be in a showroom. So you go in a bar, you buy one drink, okay? You buy the drink, you know, you get the house scotch, whatever, you know. You know it's powers, you know it's sickening, but what the hell, you know? <laughs> whatever they got in the doors bottle. Yeah, whatever they got in the doors bottle, yeah. So, and then you go up to the doorman and go, I got to use the bathroom. He had to let you in the showroom. Then you just never left the showroom. Right, yeah, right, up, great. Yeah. That was, yeah. So that was the wheel. So, that was, so you were second city visage in a way second, there, too. Second, second cotton ball, second, whatever. Second, <laughs> second, second, you were cutting second. a few corners there, too. <laughs> what you're telling me, basically, is you're a cheap guy. <laughs> now I'm considered a, a frugal and wise businessman. Uh, so the problem was I can't totally remember. So then I started looking up. I got obsessed by this. I started going to Jackson Brown's website, Linda Ryan, looking for chronologies. And I noticed, like on Jackson Brown's, I go, we're not sure of some of these dates. We're not sure. And I thought, man, if they don't remember. <laughs> and then I called a friend of mine in Florida who's now a Buddhist who I hitchhiked to Colorado with in the 70s. We used to panhandle on the streets. And, uh, and I called him and I go, did we see Jackson Brown and Linda Ronson? He goes, no, but we saw Pavlov's dog in Steppenwolf. And I don't remember that concert. 
He goes, and Sebuov kicked ass. I go, what year? He goes, maybe 73, 74. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. They were flying by the years in them days. So here's a question for you as an author. I want to bring it back to this, okay? All right. For us, and with the passage of time, and for most of the history of mankind, with the passage of time that there becomes myth and there becomes uh, the tall tale, you know, and there becomes the, the mixing of feelings with facts that then leads to beautiful stories. Is that, was that a better way to record our history and try to understand ourselves than in an internet-based world? I had a guy one time accuse me on uh, Facebook. He goes, hey, he goes, none of your TV shows are on the internet, man. I go, I was on TV before the internet. I was on TV. <laughs> My last TV show was in 93, you know? So uh, now everything is so, everything's like baseball now. Okay, so statistical. Stats. Yeah, so the tall tale, which oftentimes can tell uh, uh, the story of, of interhuman truth, uh, Paul Bunyan, tall tale. Well, you know, in Ireland, I'm Irish. I was born in the county yeah. Cork, Ireland. And uh, as such, I mean, I go back to Ireland a lot. All my relatives are still over there. And they have what's known as a Shaunachie. And what, he is a storyteller. I mean, they, they go around yeah. from pub to pub, you know, and they tell stories about yeah. ancient lore and they bring the news and everything else. Because when the Brits took over Ireland, of course, they outlawed all public assembly, yeah. which is why the Irish have such a culture around the pub. Because uh -huh. it was the only place, basically, we were allowed to assemble. Political meetings, get the news, because they closed down the newspapers, you know. So pubs are part of our culture. But uh, the Shaughnessy's would come around, and, and it's part of Irish lore. I mean, doesn't I mean if you're telling a story, especially in a bar, you you gotta have, be allowed a certain amount of poetic license. You know, you have to make the story better. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, nowadays, I mean, we were talking about newspapers before. Yeah. Uh, they're looking to sell papers. They don't really give a darn whether it's, whether it's true or not. They'll spread a retraction later. Yeah. You know, but so if the news are on the level, why should somebody be in a bar? I mean, if you start telling me a story yeah. and you tell me 60% of it is true and 40%, I don't care. It's a great story. Yeah. You yeah. know, I want, I'm, I'm interested. I'm giving you that leeway because, I mean, that's just understood. You, you know, you yeah. tell a story, you're a storyteller. Well, you know, the great storyteller is also able to tell the inner life of the character much more than, you know, facts can be rather boring. Uh, I think yeah. I think it was Noam Chomsky. I'm going to I'm going to butcher this, but uh, the, the great linguist in in uh, uh, anti anti-war intellect love Chomsky. Yeah, said that uh, fiction will always be a better teller of the human story than documentary because fiction tells those inner human truths that can't be touched when you're just going facts. You know, I went from A to B. I tell my I tell my uh, beginning students, I go, guy stand in line at the airport, and he's standing there, and he stands there for 20 minutes because slow line. I go boring. Boring. Right. I go, now we go inside the guy's head. Why is he at the airport? Okay. Is he going back for a funeral? Okay. Right. Is he, uh, is he, uh, is he going, is he uh, finally leaving town because he's had it? Is he going off to get married? Why is he there? Has he just, has he got drugs in his briefcase he's hoping to get through? What is the story right. inside? Right. What's now, the real story? Right. Now the man standing there is not the story at all. It's what's going on inside him that can create the excitement. If he's got drugs, are the drugs going to get through? If someone died, how does he feel about it? If he's going to get married? It's one of the first things they teach you in journalism school. I tell you, always start in the middle of your story. If you're going to start a story, yeah, start in the middle of your story. You can always flash back and give back character, back story later. You know, uh, it's just like, I guess, like comedy. I mean, you're not going to open up with a flat joke. You're going to open up with something that's, 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 that's good. You want to create interest. I tell you, when I first started writing, which wasn't that long ago, maybe six, seven years ago, and uh, I used to go into Barnes & Noble, and i go up to the bestsellers, and i just open the bestsellers and read the first line 
of every book. I wanted to see what the lead was, what grabbed you, you know? And the best lead I ever read in my life, this is the I think it's the best sentence I've ever read in my life in the English language. Uh, you know, they always tell you, but Moby Dick, you know, called me Ishmael is the most famous line yeah. in the American language. But Alice Walker wrote a lead to one of her books. And I opened it up, and this was the first line in the book. Now talk about a lead. They shot the white girl first. Yeah. Now, you know there's more than one killer. Yeah. You know there's going to be more killing. Yeah. You know it's racially motivated. Yeah. And he says it all. She says it all so simply. They shot the white girl first. There's no way you're not going to read the second sentence of that. You're not going to say, like, they shot the white girl. Eh, that don't grab me. Oh, yeah, it grabs you. <laughs> you know, it's a great sentence. You know what it does for me? I go, of course you shoot the white girl first because then everybody freaks out. They're <laughs> off their game, and you can take them all down. They're not going to come back at you real fast. That's where my mind went. Well, that's, maybe our mind went there too. That's the mind. You're going to read the so second physics. sentence. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it was the best of times. It was the worst, worst of, times. of times. Yeah, but that's Dickens. Yeah. And Dickens got paid by the word, you know. The, the, yeah. So, uh, but actually, Dickens got a great piece of advice about writing. He said, "Always give your character, because his characters are his character development. What makes Dickens so amazing? Yeah. You know, you never forget any of his characters. You know, Scrooge and et cetera, et cetera. But he always says, always give your character a wart.'" A wart. A giant wart at the end of his nose. Ah. In other words, give him something that's going to make him stand out. Well, you know, give him a tick. Give him something that makes you remember the character. You know, he's uh, um, uh, valuable uh, to me when I'm uh, um, talking to people about performance because there were some, you know, he was famous in his time. Right. Okay. And that uh, uh, every year he would be paid a lot of money to go places and do a reading of a Christmas carol. So uh, they found uh, copies of his copies of A Christmas Carol that he would bring with him, and they found his notes. And this is Dickens, paid by the word, one of the greatest writers in the English language. And there'd be notes saying, no need for this entire paragraph, a raise of the eyebrow will tell it. So he Isn't that great? He understood that in performance he had more tools. In other words, him, his wow, voice, Wow, that's body. such a great story, man. So he didn't need all those words, that he could just edit it down like that. So when, I, when I'm teaching people performance... You know, I go, you, you, wanna, you, wanna, you don't need, people try to over-explain jokes. When they first start out, they went over. There's two things, there's three things that we do when we start out uh, in the world of stand-up comedy. Uh, we just go up and we're blatantly filthy because that'll get attention, because it gets a reaction. Mm -hmm. It does. It'll definitely. Be, you definitely get trying to get a reaction. We do that. Um, are we steal? Okay. And almost all, uh, almost all people are borrowing when they first start. Okay. Uh, are we over-explain? Okay, so then I've got some setup that runs. Would you say that's the big three, the big three flaws of a beginning comic? And, and speed, probably nervousness when you're on stage. So yeah, well, I, I tell them something that Rich Scheidner taught me. Uh, Rich Scheidner, who was a, a, a big influence, one of my, if not my best friend, one of my best friends, big influence, brilliant comic. And he told me that they had a saying when you would do The Tonight Show when Johnny Carson had it. And the saying was, this is what I think Jim McCauley, who uh, booked the show, told Rich and told everybody, if you think you're going too slow... Slow down. I love it. Yeah. So, yeah, speed. I love it. Yeah, it, it's like, you know, musicians have a, you know, if you're in a band, you got a drummer, you got a bass player, you know, you got to, or, or even if you're playing, even if you're going to play by yourself in a music room. When I used to uh, practice, uh, when I was in band in high school, you'd go in there with a metronome, you know, because it would keep time because the human, uh, uh, we tend to want to speed up because whenever we're uncomfortable, we want to get through something real fast. You know, I'm, 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 as you know, I'm a neophyte at this. I only started doing it when I went back to college. So maybe I've been doing it about five years, and, and, and maybe one year of that wasn't that long. But anyway, I, I noticed my biggest problem, not my, not my biggest problem, but certainly one of my biggest problems, 
was that if a joke died, yeah, I'd race to get yes. to the next joke. I said, it was like, you didn't like that one? Well, where do you hit this one? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And, and I speak fast anyway. So I'd race to my second joke. And uh, Chris Cope was a buddy of mine, a comic out in L.A., and he told me, he said, listen, if you're in your car and your car's out of control, he says, do you step on the gas <laughs> or do you slow up? Yeah. And I said, that's a great analogy. Yeah, that's, yeah. You know, but, but your tendency is, of course, is, you know, you don't like that one? Well, I got one. You'll like this one. You know, uh, and th that's real amateur You also got to learn how to turn into the slide, too. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, I read about the, I'm seeing that there's going to, there's going to be a big storm on the East Coast, and I live in the Midwest where you have big storms. And we, and we, we always had bald tires, you know, uh, and uh, we had frozen roads in Missouri. And you learned that when you, you, if you were sliding, you don't hit the brakes. Counterintuitive. Yeah, yes. sliding. So, you know, it's figured out. But you're absolutely right. It's, when you speed up, it makes the audience nervous. That's right. Because they now think something's wrong. I got a question for you. Okay. I read someplace. The answer is seven. That's excellent. <laughs> I'm not going to ask that when, question. When you die and you go to heaven <laughs> and you tell God, I got all these questions, I got to go, seven. I thought the away. seven was going to be inches behind it. Yeah. I thought you were going to say seven inches. But yeah. that wasn't going to be the question. Those are the points. <laughs> Those are just the points on the uh, package. What was the question I was going to ask you now? Uh <laughs> that's gone yeah posterity uh, gone i do so i you know oh okay. the question i'm okay. sorry it just came to me i read someplace god knows where that uh if you're silent on stage yes it takes the audience 30 seconds to realize that you haven't said anything you think that's true is any there's any truth to that i've never looked at it that way um uh, i will tell you something that i learned from working bar gigs down south because when i started out Bar gigs down south. I mean bar gigs. I mean like, you know, uh, Papa Joe's way. <laughs> shrimp place got comedy on Wednesday. And they, they were paying, uh, there was a guy named Brad Greenberg was paying all of us more money, 200 bucks to open. Wow. To do 15 minutes. And this is what year? This is 1986, wow. 87. You know, and the louder, and the, this this is their bar. Well, you would hear them talking when you'd be at the hotel. You'd be go, you can go to comedy tonight? I don't know. I think I'm going to wait for... Uh, they got, they got Chippendale's dancers coming in tomorrow night. Yeah, I'm going to go to the wrestling <laughs> on Tuesday. You were just part of the vaudeville down there, you know? So uh, and this is where these people gather to get drunk, get laid, get pregnant, and start their lives. So they would be talking, and the louder you would get to try to get over it, the louder they would get. So what, you had, what I learned is if I didn't say anything, then they'd all look. But then you better have something to say. You, you got their attention by being quiet. You got their attention by being silent. But yeah. would you say there's any validity to that, that 30 seconds before an audience realizes that you're not saying anything? I mean, Jack Benny would wait, what, three, four minutes for, for a punchline if he didn't give it for, for his joke. If he didn't get it, he'd just sit there and stare at the audience until they... Well, I mean, let me say this. Silence is part of the language, okay? That's and, good. And, and that's, that's a part of the... What's that? Jonathan Gregory does, does great that. with the yeah, silence, yeah. yeah. Where the silence becomes, you know, what people don't realize about Sam Kinison is what great timing he had. Everybody talks about it before the Coke really kind of screwed him up. Uh, it wasn't the scream. It was the silence before the scream. Kinison was a type of comic that I would see him and then tell you and Rob and Shirley, you got to come with me and see this guy and not tell you what he's going to do so I could watch you experience him. You but know? that's something I would never notice as a neophyte that, you know, of course, I remember Kinison. I remember the screaming. I never thought about the silence before the screen, which yeah. accentuates. It's the same thing in writing. You know, they tell you in writing, it's just like an architect. What you leave out of the picture is important as what you put in. Sure. 
and what, that's why editing's so important. What you're going for life. as a comic is, um, um, you know, we got I got my grandkids at the house all the time. Believe me, if I if I uh, had a little more money in the bank, none of you would see me. I'd just be home with the grandkids all day. <laughs> um, uh, when you now, if I just stick my finger out like this, they'll be sitting in a chair, and I just let my index finger pop out. They start giggling and running. I could be across the room. <laughs> they know. They know that the tickle's coming. It's Pavlov's dog. Yeah, and so that's what you're trying to do with an audience. And whether you use, you know, silence Silence is a, a kind of a lost art in stand-up comedy because so, so much of it is uh, uh, formulated early on in loud bars where no one listens. So you're demanding. You're demanding that they listen. And you demand by being loud. You demand by yelling. You demand by uh, screaming. You demand, you know, so you're demanding it. So... Everyone's afraid if I go silence that they'll just go away. So when you say it takes 30 seconds, it may be possible that if you have a chatty crowd right. and you stop talking, they will, they will, you're right. That does make sense. They will continue to be chatty for a period. And I've seen this happen. So you know what? I, I think you're right. Now that I think about it, I've seen them be chatty, but then all of a sudden stop. I'll do this in my workshop. Look, I run a comedy workshop. So people come in, they're, they're in. They're in. Uh, they're ready to have a good time. This is part of the fun that they do. Right, they pay for, right. and they're all they're grown ups, and they they immediately revert back to high school and junior high, even though they're in their thirties and forties and fifties. They're all sitting there, and they're all talking and being goofy. Some of them, the ones that are my closest friends, are the loudest, the most obnoxious. <laughs> and I'll start to talk. I thought one of them was coming in. I thought Bob Rocky was coming in. Uh, I'll start to talk, and they won't. They'll keep talking amongst themselves. They've paid money for this. They want to be there. They believe that I have something to tell them and they won't shut up. And then I'll stop talking. And you're right. It, maybe I'm going to time it the next time. It might be 25, 30 I seconds. I read it someplace. It yeah. seemed like an exorbitant amount of time to me. I said, that can't be true. 30 seconds. But, you know, my girlfriend was a teacher, my ex-girlfriend. Yeah. And uh, the similarities between stand-up and, 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 again, I'm a neophyte. I don't know. But the stand-up, the similarities between stand-up and teaching. Like she told me once, if you've got a couple of people talking, in front yeah. of the stage. And they're not disrupting you. They're not heckling yeah. you. They're just talking. She goes, you don't have to address them. She goes, just walk over in front of them with the microphone. And I that's what teachers do, right? Yeah. They sit in front of your desk, and if you're fooling around, you're going to look up and say, uh-oh, yeah. I'm busted. She doesn't have to say a word. She just looks down on you and say, you're busted. And uh, I, I, you can get away with that in a comedy you club, right? I, I, right? I, 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 I've done it many times. I actually stood on a guy's hand once in Houston. You stood on a guy's hand? Yeah, it was a, with a, the stage was, uh, they were low, and there was actually like uh, um, <laughs> runners around the stage where people could sit their hands and drinks and stuff. And this guy wouldn't shut up, and he was always towards the back <laughs> of the stage, like to my left, and, and I just went back and I stepped on his hand. And I kept telling my joke, and then I got off, and then he shut up. I had people try to attack me on stage, you know. And we had some well, they're still doing that. Did they try to attack Louis C.K. recently? Somebody stormed the stage on Louis C.K. a couple of months ago? Uh, uh, I don't know about that, but I know someone stormed Jim Jeffries in, I believe, England. Yeah? And really? There's a, there's a video of it. So, so no matter how big you get, you still got to be on the def You got to have that microphone, Andy, just in yeah. case. Look, you, if you're putting pictures in people's uh, minds, you're making them feel stuff, there are some people who are going to have problems with impulse control. That's going to happen. You know, so uh, when you you think you think you can get beyond that, it's like a Jerry Seinfeld never had that issue because he was never putting uh, um, violent pictures in people's minds. But a Jeffries, who's extremely funny, Louis C.K., who's ungodly funny, they're putting violent pictures in your mind. And they're also a, uh, Jerry Seinfeld, for instance, even though really strong comic, never put anything there that challenged your belief system. 
So you know, you're, you're actually saying you sow what you reap here. You're, you're actually saying that the responsibility is on the comic, basically, right? I mean, I'm not saying the responsibility. He planted the seed of uh, violence. Yeah, if I'm going to go up and talk about, let's say I'm going to go up and, and uh, be uh, talk about something, uh, you know, Louis C.K. does a really funny bit about his wife, uh, his wife uh, masturbating him in their kids uh, in their kids' bedroom, in their daughter's bedroom. Uh-huh. I don't know what you said. So here's the picture, okay? They're in their child's bedroom, surrounded by all the stuff that you got in a little girl's room. It's a little girl's room. His wife's in there, and she's jacking him off. <laughs> and she, and He's she, having a problem. And, yeah, and, 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 and she's doing it in a very kind of, all right, let's just get this over. He's talking about how sad and pathetic it is. But think about the picture for a moment. In a child's bedroom, someone masturbating someone. For a lot of people... Not me, because I understand that it's a joke and it's a story and all this. And by the way, the kid's not there. I get all that, you know. And uh, uh, But for a lot of people, they would react to that so strongly right, right. that now you put a couple drinks in them. Maybe uh, maybe the doctors put them on some uh, some mood-elevating drugs, and they've had now a couple of gin and tonics, maybe a Mai Tai, a Harvey Wallbanger, you know. And uh, it, it messes with them, and they attack. Hell, man, we shoot, but not that we, you know, we, we've shot presidents and presidential candidates in this country. Being famous does not make you immune. No, not uh, at Being all. popular. Maybe making a bigger target. I mean, yeah. I, want to, I want to talk about a couple of things. What I love about talking to you is that it, it becomes this tangential thought that there's so much that I admire about you. We have so many similar uh, um, uh, things. Well, you're we well read, Tony. You know what yeah. I mean? I mean, you, you read. I like, <laughs> I like books. <laughs> I, I like you like books? I like it books. You read. Not, I don't, you know, I read. That's what the information is. It's in the books. My problem right now is, you know, I used to be such a, uh, 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 I used to just eat novels nonstop. Right, right. Everything. I read every Raymond Chandler book. I read every uh, Dashiell Hammond Who's book. Great, two great writers, yeah. by the way, and underrated writers. I mean, great writers. Yeah. I mean, if you can yeah. understand say that Raymond Chandler is underrated, but he, I mean, just great writers. And James M. Cain. James, I read a lot of James M. Cain. And, you know, a lot of that came to me through movies when I was a kid. Right. You know, you're watching these old movies. Question for you. Another okay. question for you, because I think I got about 10 years on you. Is that right? I'm about six, I'll be 68 in two months. You got eight years on okay. seven, seven or eight, yeah. Okay. Is it because we were kids that we were so enamored with the movies of the 30s and 40s? Or, but I mean, if I if I saw like Brad Pitt, it wouldn't affect me that much, you know. Like I'd say, yeah. okay, it's Brad Pitt. But if I saw Humphrey Bogart, I would drop dead. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I'd be so yeah. so starstruck. Do you find that that like that uh, because of your youth, because you were so in, you know impressionable I, when I you were saw, kid? If I saw Brad Pitt, if I was able to have a conversation with him, I would say a couple things to him. And I'd say, A, you beat me out for the part on Dallas because I showed up for my audition drunk. <laughs> so you have me to thank for your career. And I used to babysit your wife. So um, Is that right? Did yeah. you really? Yeah, I did, yeah. So uh, um, I, I knew I knew uh, t- <laughs> I, I knew the I knew the mom. I knew John John a little bit. Uh-huh. So um, yeah, I would not be as excited by seeing Brad Pitt as I would by seeing Humphrey Bogart. Or Gable or somebody or like Gable, that. Yeah, uh, or Brando. I'm, 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 really, right, Brando. I'm really of that, you know. My, my, and I realize my father loved the method actors. You know, he didn't really understand that he loved the method actors. But somehow when Marlon Brando did Streetcar Named Desire, guys like my dad, guys who worked in factories and lived in uh, railroad flats in the inner city and stuff, there was a character they could identify right, with. Right. They could identify with Gregory Peck. You know, they could have been being a lawyer. The man in the gray flannel suit. Yeah. But, see, those guys hardly ever played a nobody. They Because the writers at the time thought, well, it has to be an interesting character. It's one of the problems sometimes. It was an era of screenwriting where they were teaching, well, your screenplay should start 
on a special day. So how many movies start out on a wedding, on New Year's, right, right. you know? So, yeah, right, the, the, right. so it's because the writer, I love a writer who could take a day, it's any other day, it's a normal day. And, uh, and, and painted special. And painted special. That, that's what I like. When you talk about a streetcar named Desire, did you ever see Kazan in anything? No, Kazan was an actor before he was a director. Yeah. Gadge? Is that what they called him? Gage, Gage? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I never saw him. I was, um, I met uh, like Rudy Bond, who had been in Streetcar and had been in uh, On the Waterfront, you know, and a couple other people. There's a great, he wrote a, a great autobiography. Rudy Bond played the upstairs neighbor in Streetcar Named Desire, the drunk guy upstairs. And he never made much money. He always had these little parts, three or four lines in a lot of stuff. And he tells a story of one time picking someone up in front of a theater in Times Square, New York. He was a cab driver. He was an actor, but he was a cab driver. Picking him up, and they got in, and the driver along turns around to him and goes, hey, how'd you like me in the picture? And he goes, the people freaked <laughs> out. You know, because people had a hard time separating that, and, he says, and they jumped out of my cab. <laughs> So I met these people. I also know that there was uh, there were people. Uh, I hung out in the um, uh, the dying end of um, uh, the method acting culture because I went to the Strasbourg Institute. I was there in the seventies. A year before I arrived at the Strasbourg Institute, they had finally passed a rule or made a rule at Strasbourg Institute that if you were doing a uh, uh, a scene on stage for your class and it had to do with junkie shooting up, that you could no longer actually shoot up. So it was right at the end wow. of, the, of the wild and woolly seventies. You know. I met Dennis Hopper there. Met all these people. Pacino, Panic, and Needle Park pops into my mind yeah. immediately. Yeah, for you could do that. Or you know, uh, what a, a, a hat full of rain was right. a uh, came out of the actor studio. Michael Gazzo wrote it. You know, what, Michael Gazzo is famous for three things. You know what they are? No. He wrote uh, the first play that became the first movie dealing with drug addiction, which was a hat full of rain. Okay, great he, film. He wrote King Creole, which was uh, probably Elvis's, Elvis's best, best film. Best film. Yeah. And he's the guy. Uh, he's Michael Pantangelis in The Godfather. Oh, yeah. Uh, I was in business with his father. Wow, no kidding. Yeah, yeah, and uh, an actor studio guy, a New York, a New York. Wow, character. I didn't know he was that accomplished that he had done all that. I knew he was a, a you know, a, a character actor. I didn't know that he yeah. had done all of that. Now, a handful of rain came out of a workshopping, like scenes, and he kind of helped compile all the scenes. And it was. Do, do you remember the movie with Sinatra, the man with the golden arm? Yeah, sure. That sure. was those Frankie Machine. Yeah. Uh, and uh, what was the movie with uh, Kirk Douglas where he played the guy? He actually he was supposed to be a drug addict. It was an alcoholic. Uh, um, I think it was Man with a Horn or something. Man with a Horn, right? Yeah. Young Man with a Horn. Young Man with a Horn. That was Kirk Douglas, wasn't it? Was Kirk, that Kirk Douglas, yeah. By Letty Bruce eviscerates that film in one of his greatest bits. In one of his greatest bits about where he talks about how Hollywood movies take every great story and just ruin them. And just ruin them. I, I'll, I've actually got it on tape. I'll try to find it and give it to you. Or maybe you can find it on YouTube now. So, uh, yeah, Gaza was the first one, though, to write that. So I was there during that period of time. There were people around that, if you mentioned Laya Kazan's name, stared at you like they wanted to shoot you. Because of the McCarthy thing? Because of the McCarthy thing, yeah. And um, the story was, this was the story I heard. And I, I was actually new Lee Strasberg. I sat next to him for an entire session. I was his class secretary. Wow. Uh, uh, in He was in his early 80s. He was dying, or he was going to die soon. He um, uh, he was alive in class. He would jump on stage and act out, and he'd go, you're supposed to be a teenager. He was a teenager, would walk in the room and be a teenager. And he'd walk out of class, and he'd just be all slump-shouldered. And he wow. came alive in that classroom. So he came alive on stage. He came yeah. alive. He just animated. The story was that... 
uh, you know, careers were being destroyed. People are going crazy. Kazan they, gave everybody up was the story, right? Yeah, and the story was that Kazan went to Strasbourg and said, um, they, we're just now taking off. We're just now everything that we dreamed of all these years, and we were communists. You know? He goes, but, but if I name names, it's going to destroy people. But if I don't, it'll destroy me. I don't know what to do. And supposedly, Lee Strasberg looked at him and had what I call a Pontius Pilate moment and said, just tell them the truth. Wow. You know, so, you know, Kazan, suppose the names that Kazan named, the, the committee already had, you know, but uh, uh, it was a big point of contention at, the, at that time. There were people that if you mentioned his name, you know, I mean, the whole... Uh, lot well, of with Trumbull out right now, especially, I mean... I got to see this. With Trumbull out, I mean, that's got to yeah. be, uh, Kazan's got to be, I, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm sure that he's not looked that favorably in the, in the screenplay, and I'm sure yeah. he's mentioned. There's guys that hated him. You know, great playwrights. The guy who wrote Dead End, what was his name? Uh, which uh, uh, The guy who wrote Dead End, I, I can't remember his name. Great playwright, wrote Dead End and also wrote Detective Story that then became the template for every television detective show for years, that in the, uh, in the Station House story. Uh, he wouldn't have anything to do with him. Uh, Arthur Miller for years. Well, and, Arthur Miller, yeah. yeah and, 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 you know, they were peas in a pod. Well, he wrote The Crucible him. based on, on the McCarthy yeah. trials. I mean, if you read The Crucible, it's, uh, you know, it's about witch hunts, but but they're talking about the 50s. Uh, High Noon is actually an allegory for the uh, the witch hunts, you know? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, Think yeah, about you're it. right. You yeah. got the one guy everybody admires. All of a sudden, everybody's deserting him. And, who's and then someone's coming into town to destroy the town. He has to stand up to him. John Wayne hated the movie because at the end of it, Gary Cooper throws his badge in the dirt. And 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 there were uh, um, wow! I never thought about it as an allegory for that. I I've, I read one time that uh, E.T. Yeah, is an allegory for the Christ uh, story, and when you think about it, it comes from out of space. Sure. Uh, the, the innocence of the ones that protect them. Yeah, all the authorities are after him, you know, and then yeah. he goes, he dies. Yeah, goes back to where he came from. Sure. <laughs> Sure. And you, you wonder why you relate to the, the E.T. so well, and you say, well, Spielberg's a genius. And, and if just, Amy Schumer had written the Christ it, story. Wendy Lehman would be attacking her today. <laughs> For stealing the For Christ stealing story. Christ story. Uh, on the waterfront, is, a lot of people say it was Kazan's answer. Because what, what does the protagonist do in On the Waterfront? Yeah. He names names. He names names. He names names. Yeah, he does, yeah. yeah. He's a canary. He's a canary at the yeah. end, yeah, that's a right. A canary for a canary, a pigeon for a pigeon. <laughs> Rod Steiger is great. Uh, Rod Steiger is just a fine actor. Tell them I couldn't find you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, listen, uh, you know what I wanted to do, and I still have time to do it, because I wanted to talk about you, because uh, I find you to be a fascinating individual. You know, interesting enough, when I did uh, Fraser Smith's show, right? Yeah. I, I, I'm, in, I'm in the green room. and uh, Great guy, Fraser Smith. And, and well prepared. Yeah. You know, like yourself. Well read, well prepared, really impressed me. Uh, and boy, did he hit me. I, uh, I was in a green room, and uh, two girls come walking into the green room. One was Kelly Collin, George Collin's daughter, mm -hmm. and the other one is Camilla Cleese, John Cleese's daughter. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting there, and I, of course, I worship these comics. I mean, these yeah. are the comics that I sure. call in, and John Cleese. I mean, these are guys like, you know, I said, wow, you know, they blow me away. And these are their daughters, and I'm saying to them, Jesus, I'm just the son of a drunk, an Irish drunk. They go, what do you think we are? You know, what do you, yeah. what do you think we're something different? But I go in to see. Frazier Smith, and I'm expecting him to yeah. be talking about comedy or the book. You know, he's got two things. The first question he asked me is, so, you were a firefighter. Was 9-11 a conspiracy? Yeah. That's how he opened. Mm -hmm. I, it caught me completely off guard, but I, I gave him my answer. I said, you know, I said, no, there's no way it was a conspiracy, and I'll tell you why it wasn't a conspiracy, because if the government was smart enough to make that a conspiracy, if they were going to... If they wanted an excuse to go to Iraq, if they were going to mm -hmm. manufacture consent to yeah. go to Iraq, 
why wouldn't they make the hijackers Iraqi? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then they got an open and shut case. Then everybody yeah. says, let's go to Iraq. So, I mean, no. Well, they wouldn't go to the trouble of making them Saudi Arabians and yeah. Yemen. You know, so that's number one. Then number two, he asked me, do I think the NFL was fixed? Do I think the NFL was uh -huh. fixed because of confessions of a Bronx bookie? Right? Yeah. And I got to tell you, I don't think it's on the level. Do I think it's fixed? No. But I think as a, as a gambler and as a bookmaker over the years, I've seen games that just don't make any sense where everybody, like I'm, you're writing tickets and everybody's calling up betting one side of a team and the line is going the other way instead of up and you're saying to yourself, well, if I got a thousand tickets here and everybody bets San Diego and the line is two and a half on San Diego. And all I'm writing is San Diego money. Why is the line going down to pick them? Who's betting Miami? Uh -huh. Who's betting the huge money to bring the line down? Because it's always money that moves it, right? So I've seen things. But in my opinion, and this is, I can't really substantiate it, I guess, but uh, they've put the, the, the game more and more in the hands of the officials every year. That's true. You know, yeah. I mean, what is defensive holding, interior defensive holding? There's defensive holding on every single play. Yeah. You call anytime you want. Now, if you call in de defensive holding down by the goal line, you give me one time that you're going to give me seven points, right? If I, if I buy you, uh -huh. and I'm not saying I'm going to buy you in a Super Bowl. I buy you in a game like Jacksonville plays Cleveland or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm saying, look, you're a ref. You give me one call, one seven-point call. Call it back for defensive holding. Call it back for uh, an eligible receiver. Whatever you call it for. You know, uh, that's 25% of the scoring. I'll take that every time. I'm not going to win every bet. And who are these judges? Who are the officials? They're judges. They're lawyers. And we know they're incorruptible, right? Judges and lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're just noble men. There's no way you're going to be able to corrupt them. But the amount of money that's involved. I mean, there's nothing in America that's on the level when you're talking about huge amounts of money. Why would the NFL be the only thing that's absolutely incorruptible? It's well, ridiculous. We've seen we saw uh, a scandal in the NBA a few years ago involving right. a ref here in Phoenix. There's a scandal. Uh, there's certainly been a, there's a scandal brewing right now in tennis. That's right, and yeah. and soccer. In soccer, yeah, and soccer too. Yeah. I mean, but but I mean, look, the government's not on the level. The church is not on the level. Uh, you tell me anything that's on the level that deals with huge pieces of my corporations. I mean, credit cards ain't on the level. I mean, you should yeah. put guys in jail for loaning the 10%. Yeah, I know. Now they loaned yeah. 28%. Or even, let's take Wall Street, where they robbed all the money. What happened to the RICO Act? Yeah. They I, put gangsters in jail. They take their car. They take their house. They say, you got the money illegally. There was no RICO Act when it went Wall Street because they own the government. I actually told a credit card company one time, I go, you know, there used to be a loan shark in my neighborhood that did not charge the interest you guys <laughs> And go to jail for 10%. Yeah, go to jail for it, yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, um, so nothing's here, on the level. Here's what Nothing. I want... Here's what... Uh, so you claim, by the way... Can I say this? Because you, you told me this, not necessarily yes. in confidence, but in, in a green room, that you can prove... That the 69 Super Bowl was fixed. That the, yeah, you can prove that the 1969 Super Bowl was That's fixed. That's right. That you've taken this story to... Hollywood. Yeah, I've taken it to Hollywood. And they say they believe. So maybe we shouldn't say too much more about the story because I still got a plan for okay. the story. All right. Okay. But, but yeah, but I, but I can. Uh, well, let's. There was a one, Joe Namath. That was the Namath. New, I guarantee it. Game. But yeah. the amount of money, that game wasn't just a game. There was two games in the NFL, and you know this because yeah. you're an old uh, football fan. Yeah. The 57 Giant Cult game yeah. is what made football viable yeah. as a television product. Mm hmm. Now television realized, wow, 
this is suspense. Yeah. We can do something with this. Yeah. And then, of course, that when the synergism involved, because when I was a kid in the 50s growing up in New York, we didn't watch football. Nobody cared about the NFL. Yeah. The number one sport was baseball. Sure. Mays, Mantle, Snyder. It's it was baseball. It's because the best team in the world was in St. Louis. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well baseball, we was, baseball boxing was yeah. number two. Boxing. That's all my family talked about when boxing. I was a kid. Boxing and baseball. That's right. Maybe college football, hockey, three or four. But pro football? Yeah. No. That was down five and six. Because the reason is because pro football is the perfect game for television. Sure. What do you got? 12, 14 minutes worth of action? The field is shaped like a football screen? Yeah. You're marching up and down. It's the replays. It's the takes. It's the only game, and you go to a lot of sporting events, that you can go to that's not as good watching it live as it is on television. God's truth. The first time I went to an NFL game, I sit there and I go, I don't know what the hell's going on. <laughs> I can't make this. It took me a number of going to live. I used to go to the Coliseum and see the Raiders all the time, and, and I saw a lot of them. Uh, uh, but you go, go to the fights, you go to an NBA game, yeah. you go to a college basketball game, hockey game, nothing like being there live. Yeah, nothing like that. Nothing like nothing. that. Nothing. But a big NBA NFL guy. game, yeah. I mean, they're calling timeouts for commercials. Now, when, yeah, once you once your eye gets used to it, once you're prepared for that, Rob, you go to sporting events? Yes. Uh, do you agree with him about uh, football being uh, um, something you can follow better on television than uh, uh, 100%. I was at the Cardinals game on Saturday. You were and, there? Yes. Oh. And I must then, be paying you too much, and I don't pay you anything. Then uh, I went and I watched it again because they had an NFL network. I watched it again. And I, there were so many plays. Where I was like, I don't even remember that. I was sitting <laughs> at, like, the top of the stadium, and I had a ton of fun because it was a great game. But then I watched it on TV. I was like, this is an even better game. Yeah. Sure. Bill, I got to get to some things here. I mean, we, there's a hundred things we could talk about, but there, I want to I want to ask you some. I questions. knew this was going to happen. But you know, no, anyway. this is good. This is this is good. So you are 67 years old. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you had a, a a pretty darn full life. I've had a ball, man. Yeah. Absolute ball. But, you know what? And it just keeps getting better. So uh, thank God, I'm as healthy as a trout. Sometimes you are an actual inspiration. You probably may not think of yourself that way, but I find you to be an inspiring character because. What many people consider late in life, right around the age I am, because I'm 60, you decided to go back to college. Well, yeah, after 9-11, uh, I, 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 I was a drunk anyway. I mean, I'm, alcohol, I always often say this, doesn't run in my family. It gallops. Sure. It's true. Everybody in my family is dead mm -hmm. from alcohol. Everybody. So I've already outlived everybody. Seldom touch it, but it often touches me. <laughs> yeah. My mother my mother yeah. had the greatest. I tell my mother, Ma, you know who died? Artie Fitzmaurice. And she, Fitzmaurice? Dead? Is he? But she, he didn't drink at all. <laughs> she couldn't believe there was another way you could die. You know what yeah. I mean? But uh, after 9-11, I mean, uh, I was down in the Keys, and I was, I retired because I failed the captain's test. It was the first test I think I ever failed in my life. And the four guys I studied with, interestingly enough, are, are dead now because they all passed the test, and they were all in that building on 9-11. Mm. And there's no doubt in my mind, had I had passed that test, I would have been a captain and, and inside that building on 9-11. So I was down in the Keys, <laughs> I just sold a restaurant that I had, and I retired because I failed the captain's test. I wasn't going to wait five years for another test. And I'm down the Keys, and I'm drinking a quart and a half a day. Scotch. And uh, this is going on for three, well, I guess going on for about a, about a, about a year. And then 9-11 happened. And uh, I, I went back up and worked on the dig. I drove up and worked there for about three or four days. And I came back down. I got drunk for another year or two. And then I realized I was killing myself, so I sobered up and I went to the University of Florida. And because uh, my girlfriend was an academic and she was getting a doctorate degree, 
and she got a, a scholarship for it. So I'm jogging past the university one day, and I'm trying to learn Spanish on my on the earphones. I'm saying, what am I doing? I'm, I'm studying Spanish. I've always loved political science. I've always loved history. I've always wanted to get a degree. Vietnam got in the way. I'm 58 years old. I said, you know what? As long as I'm with this chick, I'm going to be around schools. I said, stupid. I might as well take some courses. The very first thing I ever wrote was an English 101 class. I go into an English 101 class, which is basically to see if you're literate. Uh -huh. Can you write a free paragraph? You know. Uh -huh. And I wrote a, a piece about, was right after the United States invaded Iraq. Maybe a month later. And I wrote a piece comparing Iraq to Vietnam. And I said, this is just complete nonsense. You know, this is garbage. And the teacher said, his English 101 teacher, she said, this is a really good piece. Do you mind if I do something with it? And I said, what's an English 101 piece? What are you going to do with it? You know, keep it in your bathroom? You know, do whatever you want with it. And next day I woke up and, and I get on the internet and I got like 600 emails from all over the country, from like, from Japan, from Australia, from England. And I'm like, to my girlfriend, who are these people? What are they talking about? She goes, they said, Mr. O'Connor, I read your words. I was so impressed. I said, I didn't write anything. She goes, you wrote something. Chase it back, you know, because I didn't even know what it, I said, what does it mean? She goes, you got published. And I said, what does that mean? <laughs> I didn't even know what that meant. Yeah. And she said to me, you wrote something. So I traced it back, and this, this, she gave this piece to this thing called Counterpunch, and it uh, goes out to three million people, and uh, it did. And then it went viral. USA Today picked it up. And so the first, the first thing I ever wrote went viral. It was so intoxicating. I said, holy crap, maybe I can write. I said, what's the quickest way to learn? to my girlfriend, and she said, journalism, don't take English. She goes, you're going to go back to Chaucer and Shakespeare and all the stuff you learned yeah. in high school. Journalism will give you the tools. So I took a journalism class, and then I started writing, and uh, people started reading. But, uh, yeah, it's been, and it's a great ride because, you know, uh, I don't know where it's going to end, but if it doesn't end anywhere, it just gives you a reason to put your feet on the ground every morning, man. You know, like, I really, really love the writing. I love it. So you're, so in your late 50s, after you sober up. Yeah, I sober okay. up. At, at a time when most people are slowing down, you then Start. step through another door. You sober up, you go to college. I'm assuming you graduated from college? Yeah, I got my journalism degree, yeah. Graduated from college. I never got so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know it's hard to believe. <laughs> learning. No, you great. And, and now you are, and then you uh, you wrote a book. You wrote, in a sense, your memoirs. Can we call it that? Or yeah, yeah. It's embellished the points, you know, yeah, but yeah. Okay. All right, so you wrote uh, But you know what I did do, if you notice? I deliberately didn't make the character a firefighter. Yeah. He's totally out. There's no firefighting because because of the drugs and the alcohol. I didn't want to disparage the department. Uh, but the book I'm writing now is about a drunken firefighter. And it's going to be called The Mick. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy's name is Mick Mullen. And M&M directly because of Mickey Mantle. Of course, uh -huh. in the Bronx, the Mick... Anybody who looks at the Mick in the Bronx, yeah, and this guy's going to have a seven on his helmet for no by no accident, ah. and uh, and I'm writing a book about 9/11. Of course, the anecdotes, Tony. I have anecdotes about 9/11. Yeah. I've read a lot about it because it affected me immensely, you know. But I have anecdotes that nobody has access to. I mean, every firefighter. I was a firefighter for 20 years in the Bronx and Harlem. Every firefighter was there at one time or another. You might sure. not have been there at the actual initial collapse, but one way or another they, they were, there. were there. So I pick up a phone. I say, "Hey, Joey, when did you get there?" I got there, Billy, about an hour after the second building came down. Mikey, when did you get there? I got there before the first building came down. When uh -huh. did you get? There? I got there three days later. I'd say to him, "Listen, I don't want to know what you remember. Just tell me one thing." 
that you absolutely cannot forget. And I got to tell you, Tony, I saw guys, this is 14 years later, put their hands in their, in, in their face. Sure. And look up with tears coming down their eyes and then tell me an antidote. They'd say, Billy, the smell. The smell, I'll never forget the smell. I mean, it's like a roast, man. You mean like when we used to find burnt bodies, like a roast, because you can't, when you smell a, a body that's been incinerated, you can never again believe that man is the highest order of things. So we have a euphemism for them. We call them roasts because we can't identify with them as bodies because it's tough to live with looking at a child that's been burnt beyond belief. You know, I mean, I threw a guy's leg out the window one time. I didn't know it was a leg. I thought it was a piece of charred wood, you know. And, uh, you know, I picked it up, and I, when anything charred, we throw it out the window, and a guy uses a garden hose so we don't make a mess inside the apartment, you know. And I threw this leg out. The guy says, Connie, you just threw a guy's leg out the window. I throw it back up. <laughs> I mean, what do you do? I mean, you know, you you got to deal with this. Yeah. This is what we dealt with in the South Bronx and Harlem. So uh, we use a euphemism, but, but this guy told me, I said, so like a roast, Mikey? He said, no, Billy, 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 not like that. He goes, the worst smell I ever smelled in my life. He goes, after, after a couple of weeks, we would just clear a little bit of the rubble, and I, my, my, my nose would jump back. It smelled like rotten raw chicken, rancid chicken. He says, like, because flesh that it just beyond burnt. Now, this is that's rotten. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, anecdotes like that that you sure. can't write about unless somebody was there was and there. tells you. And I've got about 20 of them that are really powerful. So I think I'm going to have a terrific close to this book. I hope so. You know, if I can do it justice. I got to tell you, uh, we got to wrap up. I'm going to tell you why I'm glad I didn't meet you till I did. I'm going to tell you the story why. Because there would have been a chance for me to meet you uh, it, possibly in a different time, in a different place, and then we wouldn't be meeting today. In um, in the summer of 2001, I took my daughter to New York for what I called her Broadway experience. My folks, we never went, we're going to your grandpa's. That's how we went. Okay, and I, I'm going to take her to New York for a Broadway experience, take her to see a play. You know, it got me, I, I could go there and not be a cynical jerk and be a tourist and have fun, ride the red double-decker, and she always wanted to go up in the big buildings. She always wanted to go up in the big buildings. She goes, I want to go in the tallest building there is. So we go to the top of the World Trade Center. This is in June or July of 2001. We go all the way to the top. On the way down, the elevator, you know those large elevators, you can hold about 25 yeah, or 30 people, sure. right? It stops somewhere halfway down. Some, there's a malfunction and we are stuck on the elevator. We're on that elevator for about two hours, waiting for them to straighten wow. out whatever it is. People are starting to panic. People are starting to freak out. People are crying. You know, kids, yeah, I hate you, but daddy. And I've just got my, my, my daughter's 10 years old. I got my arms on her shoulder going, stay cool, stay cool. You know, in my mind, I go, one of two things are going to happen here. And I have no control over either one of them. But, you know, I wasn't, and I said, stay cool. We're going to get down. Eventually, the elevator moves. We get to the bottom. It's summer of 2001. There's firefighters there, several firefighters going, Everybody okay? Anybody need anything? And some people have gone right in their New York mode, just shooting right by them and stuff. My daughter's shaking a little, and one of the firefighters goes, she okay? And I go, I think so. He goes, why don't you just let us take her on the truck? Okay, and I go, all right. So we, my daughter and I get on one of these trucks with one of these firefighters, and they give her water, and they give her, and they give her like a whole tour of it. They let her ring the bell. She, they give her a blanket to, I think maybe to this day that she has, she wouldn't let go of that blanket. They were some of the, you meet cops, you meet lawyers you meet judges and they, they turn out to be schm these guys they go these guys are out of central casting these are who firefighters are these were the most wonderful guys i met some amazing yeah. men you know and, and, and well hold on and I'm so sorry. what i realized was a few months later when there was a problem at the world trade center 
These were the first guys there, which meant on September 11th, they were the first guys there, which meant that a lot of those men who had been wonderful to my daughter and I are no longer with us. And if you'd passed your captain's test, you might have been one of the guys who gave my daughter a blanket instead of sitting here with us tonight. There's Today. No, no doubt in my mind, you know, but uh, you hear so many stories about 9-11, you know, guys that if they, if they would have shaved an extra couple of licks, yeah. they would have missed, you know, something happening. Or guys stopped to get their equipment at somebody else's, you know, I used uh, When I went up there, I, I went back to my old house and grabbed my old stuff. But uh, a lot of guys don't feel comfortable unless they're using their equipment. But some guys didn't wait to go to the firehouse. They'd go right downtown yeah. to help. And yeah, they're dead. You know, uh, they're so, gone. so many. Yeah, I mean, it's so many tales. Well, we'll be doing a comedy show tomorrow night. Yes, <laughs> that, on that note. <laughs> on that note, we got to wrap up. That. Listen, you got to you got to come back. You got I, I I haven't gotten to you know that you, in your late in, uh, in your in your late fifties you went back to college. You wrote a book and they became a stand up comic. And I want to know about this stuff and I want you to share it with us. So I need you to come back in the next I'd couple love, of weeks. I'd love it? to come back. You come right. out of ball, Tony. Always good talking uh, to you. Hey, I and I think we're gonna have a ball tomorrow night too at the, at the Tepe Center for the Performing Arts. It's we're gonna, gonna be have a lot a of fun. Great, great time. You got a great cast there. You got yeah. Uh, Joe Corcoran, who's an old pro like yourself. You got Mike Kubota's great. And, and Kubota, yeah. And, and uh, Michael, young Michael Longfellow. Michael Longfellow, yeah. young yeah. rising fast star. He's going to make yeah. it one of these days. He's got the talent, yeah. sheer talent. Yeah. And I'm going to whistle a couple of jokes. Um, tomorrow night, uh, tomorrow night, when I keep saying night, tomorrow in studio we have from the Laugh Factory uh, my old buddy John Campanera. And uh, um, we also have Brent Ernst from... Uh, from the House of Comedy. They'll both be in tomorrow when we come back at 9 a.m. Uh, but tomorrow night, Tempe Center for the Arts, clean, kings of clean comedy, uh, Billy O'Connor and myself and a whole cast of very funny people. Thank you very much for listening. For tickets to all of those shows, to find out information, go to ComedySchoolsRadio.com, which you already have if you're listening, or ComedySchools.com. This is This American Podcast, Comedy Edition. I'm Tony Visick. We'll talk to you tomorrow.